turmoil and there are wars and there are rumors of wars. But in the midst of all of this uh, anarchy and difficulty, your work is being done. We thank you for John. We thank you that you have sovereignly worked in his life, that you have given him a Christian home and a nation where that is all not that common. Uh, you have gifted him, you have equipped him, and you have a work for him to do. We pray that your favor would be upon him. We pray that you would keep him in the scriptures, that you would work in his life so that he could maintain a good conscience as he does your work. Uh, Lord, we're thrilled to hear about the increase that's happened this year. Uh, may you continue, Lord, to grow this ministry, and may many come to know Christ and be disciples. We, uh, we ask that you'll teach us now. We ask that you'll instruct us. We ask that you would even surprise us. You always have things in mind for us that we know nothing about, that just come at the right moment, those words of encouragement that come at the right time. We ask you to do that, Lord. We're completely dependent on you, and we acknowledge that tonight. And We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been to a fair amount of leadership seminars, um, many of them from a Christian perspective. And if you go to a leadership seminar, you're usually going to get some stuff uh, on the different aspects of leadership. Uh, leadership is action. Leadership is uh, influence. Uh, leadership is character. Leadership is integrity. And it is all those things. Uh, leadership is, uh, did I say decision making? No. Well, I just said it. Good. I wanted to say it. And I have no excuse because I wasn't on a plane for 30 hours. But, you know, there are all these things that you know to be true about leadership. But I get concerned sometimes because I think we, we tend to give the party line on leadership. And when I see certain guys in the Bible, I, I see uh, traits to their leadership that we don't often talk about at leadership seminars. I, I think one of the things that has to happen for a man to be a good leader, to be a good Christian leader, is that he must know how to, to, to become good and angry. You can't be a good leader if you don't have a, uh, a quotient of anger. Now, that might surprise you because we tend to think of anger as a negative thing. And anger most definitely can be a negative thing. Uh, anger can be a very, very destructive force. But as I read the scriptures and I look at the lives of men that God used, I see a lot of anger in their lives. Uh, now, I said, if you recall, I, I, I said I think we need as Christian men to learn how to be good and angry. Not angry, but good and angry. On your way to Nehemiah 13, turn with me to Ephesians 4. Just go over to your right. And you'll find Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, Paul is talking very practically uh, about the Christian life and what happens when the Spirit of God is in control of our lives. And one of the things that he says in verse 26 is, he says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Anger, wrong anger, can give the devil a tremendous opportunity. Uh, if, if you uh, tend towards intellectual pursuits and you love to read the classics and you love to listen to classical music, and you love to watch uh, the show Cops on Fox. That was a joke. 
You guys didn't get that, did you? You guys need some coffee. Yeah. Well, if you watch Cops, if you watch that show, uh, they're either pulling guys over on chases or they're showing up for some kind of domestic dispute. Whenever there's a domestic dispute, there's anger. But it's the wrong kind of anger. There's a wrong kind of anger and there's a good kind of anger. Uh, the, the Bible is clear that anger can go either way. Uh, be angry, yet do not sin. Well, well, how do you do that? And what is it that we should be angry about? I don't know about you, but I find myself getting, I, I get angry quite a bit. Now, if you're a pastor, you're not supposed to say that. Because if you're a pastor, you're supposed to be above that. You're not supposed to get angry. You're, you're, you're supposed to be uh, neutered uh, when it comes to <laughs> anger. But any pastor, I think, worth the salt gets angry. But you've got to learn to get angry over the right things, and you have to learn to control anger when anger is inappropriate. Because anger is a powerful force, and anger out of control, and anger out of the control of the Scriptures, and anger out of the control of the Holy Spirit can be extremely destructive. Guys get angry in the wrong way, well, you'll punch out your wife. Guys get angry, and um, you'll say something that you'll regret for years that you said. Because you can cut somebody to shreds. We see guys getting angry, and they go postal, right, as we say. And they go get their Glock, and they load it up, you know, and they get some extra clips, and they go in there, and they start firing, and they start killing people. Well, you'd never do that. Uh, no, but you can sure cut them up with your tongue. Can't you? See, anger out of control can just lacerate people's hearts and people's emotions. Some of you guys uh, were deeply wounded growing up by, uh, by a verbal knife that your father slashed you with. And there is a deep, deep wound uh, in your heart. And if anything ever comes close to just touching that, there's an immediate reaction. Why? Well, when he said it, he probably didn't mean it. He was just out of control. And the anger was controlling him rather than him controlling the anger. Let's go to Nehemiah 13. Because what we're going to see in Nehemiah 13 is we're going to see a great leader, and we've gotten to know Nehemiah. And, and this guy is a stud as far as I'm concerned. He is a leader's leader. Uh, he is wise. He is discerning. Uh, he knows how to wait for God's timing. Uh, he knows how to uh, do a reconnaissance mission in order to figure out the best way to proceed. Uh, you don't see a lot of impulsiveness in this guy. You, you don't see uh, that he's got a hair trigger going on in his life. Uh, I, think, I think in Nehemiah, you've got a very wise man. I think you've got a very stable man. I, I think you have uh, a man who has uh, got his passions under control. But in Nehemiah 13, he gets hacked off. He just, the whole chapter is about being angry and how he got angry. Now, what happens in Nehemiah 13 is uh, we get a hint of what happened because uh, he was in Persia. He was the cupbearer to the king. You guys know all this. Uh, he has this passion to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall because it's in shambles and the city and the temple are virtually defenseless. So he goes over there. He does all this amazing work. God is with them. God gives them favor over their enemies. And then after a period of time, we come to 13 and verse 6 says, But during all this time, 
I was not in Jerusalem. Now, we'll go back and pick up what time he's referring to. But there was a point where after the major work had been done, that he goes back to Persia to give a report to the king. And he was there for a fair amount of time. That, that's the context. During all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil. There you go. Uh, while he was gone, evil took place. And that's what hacked him off. If, if you, as a Christian husband and father, never get angry, there's something wrong with you. Now, if you're always getting angry, there's something wrong with you. Because you have to learn how to get angry over the right things. In the scriptures, there is an anger that is a righteous anger. Righteous anger gets angry over evil. Uh, righteous anger reacts to things that trample on the holiness of God and the holiness of his word and the application of his word. Go over to Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, right on the tail end, one of the greatest psalms in all the Bible, and I think I mentioned this before, it's about the greatness of God and the majesty of God. If I could title Psalm 139, I'd title it, My God Can Beat Up Your God, because that's what it's about. It's about the power of Almighty God. Um, but down in verse 19, David kind of takes a turn. Actually, in 17, he says, How precious are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. He, he has been uh, pondering and meditating on the greatness of God, on the holiness of God, on the purity of God, on the majesty of God. And he's overwhelmed with, with all of these thoughts about God. And then in 19, he kind of goes uh, ballistic because he says, Suddenly, it's just a turn. It's just a change of character. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, you men of bloodshed. For they, now catch this, for they speak against thee wickedly. Hmm. And thy enemies, catch this, take thy name in vain. That hacks him off. I, I remember reading Billy Graham's biography. And when he was a young uh, man in college, he was out doing some preaching on the street, back when people used to preach on the street. And um, he was, uh, he, he, he'd done some preaching, and he walked into a gas station to get a drink of water. And one of the mechanics was out there and started saying, you know, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and and uh, Billy Graham, this 20-year-old kid, turned to the guy, and he said, you shouldn't talk like that. And the guy said, well, and, and Graham dropped his Bible and was going to take the sucker on. <laughs> you know? I love that. Now, he, he, he didn't, but he was getting ready to cold cock this sucker in the name of Jesus. <laughs> now, when you're 20 and you're immature, sometimes that's what you, but, but I got to commend him for this. What was he doing? He was standing up for his God. Now, God doesn't need us to defend him.
But you see the guy's heart, don't you? You see his love of God. You see his respect of God. When you were in school, you ever have anyone say anything bad about your dad? Or you ever have anyone say something bad about your mom? That's it, man. You just crossed the line, pal. You know, you're going to Tyson that guy. Because, you, because what has he done? He has dishonored your parents. And, and, and there's a line where you stand up for those whom you love. You stand up for those whom you respect. There is a point where you get angry because what has been said is completely inappropriate. Now, we usually don't talk about this in Christian circles because we're too concerned about being super spiritual. But that's what's killing us. God's not looking for us to be weird. God's looking for us to be normal. And if you have a great love for God, when his name is violated, when his truth is spat upon, you're going to get angry. If you don't, you're passive. If you don't, you're apathetic. If you don't, you, you are neutered. And you need to be put on spiritual hormones to get some appropriate anger in your life. Now, are you guys distinguishing between inappropriate anger and appropriate anger? So some guy uh, cuts you off driving over here and then gives you the finger? So what do you do? Well, you pull right up there and... No, no, that's not, no, that's not what you do because that's the wrong kind of anger. That's, when you, that's being angry and sinning, you see? We need to get to the point where we get over that and we get bigger than that. And we do not allow that to, uh, uh, you know, to, to influence us, that, that there's a maturity that we're growing in Christ. Now, let me move on here because we've got to nail this Nehemiah 13. But, but I'm not done in, in um, where am I, Psalm 139? So, uh, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. I like this guy. Don't you? Or would you say, well, he's out of control. I don't think he is out of control. You know what? He's showing great love for God. That's what he's doing. But he realizes he's on a little bit of thin ice. So note what he says next. And you can just kind of sense him ratcheting it down a little bit. He says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See, he's all anxious because these guys are going against God. And he, what he's got to do, he's got to calm himself down. He doesn't need to be anxious. God can defend himself. God's sovereign. God has created everything for a purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs, what is it, 16.3 says? God owns the wicked. God uses all wickedness to accomplish his purpose and to bring glory to him ultimately. See, he had forgotten that because his anger was kind of getting, you know, it's like he threw some diesel on his, on his anger. It's starting to get out of control. Lord, Lord uh, try me and know my anxious thoughts. Catch this. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Because, see, when your anger gets hurtful, it's not godly anger. And lead me in the everlasting way. Isn't that interesting? I love that stuff. Let's go to Nehemiah 13. Let's see how Nehemiah handles this anger. So Nehemiah goes back to Persia. He goes in and checks in with the king. He gives him a report, tells him what's, tells him what's going on. They're working over some budget stuff. 
They're, uh, you know, he's just touching bases, meeting with different dignitaries, and all that. Now, let's start in verse 4, because um, that'll pick up the context. He says, now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, that's the temple, related to Tobiah. You guys remember Tobiah? The two main enemies of Nehemiah, as he was rebuilding the wall, were Tobiah and Sanballat. These guys were against him. These guys were against God. Um, these guys got to the point where they threatened to kill the Jewish people who were rebuilding the wall. So Nehemiah had to have all the men strap swords on. And they had a guy in a trumpet. And if they were attacked at a certain place on the wall, everybody would come and help. I mean, this was hardball stuff. Tobiah and Sambalat were not only the enemies of, of Nehemiah, they were the enemies of God. That's who Tobiah is. So catch this. Uh, Eliashib, the priest, the priest of, of Israel, you've got to catch this, this is amazing, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah. Right there you've got a problem. Because, you see, you've got some intermarriage. See, a lot of times what happens in the church is that ungodly people get, get uh, a foothold in the church. Uh, ungodly people get on boards in a church. Uh, ungodly people get influence in a church. Uh, that happens all the time. Uh, people who profess the name of Christ, but they don't know Christ. I remember one time going up and speaking in Tennessee years ago, and uh, I was speaking on a Sunday, and I was doing a couple days for this pastor up there. He asked me to come up, and, and uh, so I went. And as he picked me up at the airport Saturday evening, and we then uh, stopped at uh, some restaurant, he had one of his board guys with him. And we're eating dinner, and we're just talking. And he, and he said, well, I said, how long have you been here? And he tells me, and you know, he's been there a year and a half, et cetera, et cetera. And he starts telling me the story about opposition he's getting in the church. Uh, he's getting anonymous phone calls in the middle of the night. He's getting threats because they don't like what he's preaching. His kids are being threatened. His tires are being slashed in a church, in a Baptist church. Isn't that amazing? And he just, and there was more, and there was more. And there was this group. I said, how many of these people are? He says, there's about eight of them. And he said, tomorrow when you speak, you'll see them in the rear on the right sitting over there. And, and I saw them. You could just tell by their faces. You could read their attitudes. <sighs> anyway. And at one point. I reminded them, this wasn't in my sermon, but I was going to work it in. In the last chapter of Hebrews, in fact, you can flip over to it. And, you know, it's one of those deals where you use some humor and you get everybody laughing a little bit. See, the great thing about humor is that you get people's defenses down. And you can kind of draw them in and you can kind of bring them in. And then what you do is you can jump and knock them right in the chops with the truth. It's a literary device. Um, but you know what? Here was a situation that needed to be dealt with. And here was a pastor in a little church who was a good guy, who's laboring, who's got a wife. He's got six kids. He's underpaid. He's, uh, he, he's, the, the guy's getting ripped to shreds. So at one point, I just happened to turn to Hebrews. And I said, now, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, I was talking about the responsibility of the congregation. 
The scriptures say, obey your leaders and submit to them. But they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I said, you need to know that if you have a contrary spirit to the leadership that God has placed in this church, God's discipline will come on you. Now, if there's legitimate sin, then you deal with that biblically. But if there is just simply a situation where you don't like what's going on, then you're in sin. And God knows you're in sin. And if you flip over to 1 Corinthians 11, because later we're going to have communion, if you have that in your heart and you take communion, Paul said to the church at Corinth, because they took communion in an ungodly way, some of you, some of you are sick and some of you even sleep. If you continue in sin and trample on the grace of God in communion, God will afflict you and God will make you sick and God will even kill you. You should understand that. Anyway, I felt better. <laughs> and there were, you, know, you could see them back there. Just you know, a bunch of wusses. <laughs> you know, I mean, who the heck do they think they are? They wanted to run that church. They had no interest in, they, they, those are the kind of people that, oh, this is our church. It's not your church. It's his church. Jesus is head of the church. You know, church constitutions are screwed up. Have you ever read church? I don't know who the yo-yo is that wrote those things. But every church that gets started, almost, what they do is they call some other church, hey, can we borrow your constitution? Sort of like a chain letter. <laughs> It's the rare church that thinks about how their church is going to be set up. One of the things that Chuck did with the leaders when they established this church is that they went to the scriptures. They didn't go to somebody else's constitution. They went to the scriptures, and they asked themselves, what do the scriptures say about how a church is to be governed and how it is to be set up? And they took their cues from the Word of God. That's how you always do it. That's a great thing. Because, you know, you've got to have the right foundation in place. So many church constitutions, you, you read them, and, and somewhere in there it'll say, the congregation is the final authority in all church matters. No, it isn't. The Word of God's the final authority. Jesus Christ is the final authority. All right. I'm good and angry. <laughs> yeah. So, Nehemiah shows up, he's in Persia, everything's good when he leaves, everything's cruising when he leaves. Then he comes back, and, and what happened was you had this incestuous relationship with this guy who's the priest, who's the son-in-law of the guy who's the archenemy of, of Israel. Now catch this in verse 5, this guy Tobiah. So this Eliashib had prepared a large room for him, in the temple, he'd given this guy, he'd given this guy a condo in the temple, uh, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites. Do you see what's going on here? The room that was set up for the things that would be used in the worship of God, 
he moved all that stuff out and he moves in his father-in-law, who's the very enemy of the work of God that's supposed to be done. Elijah, Elijah, Nehemiah comes back, sees this, and then we get down to verse 7. I came to Jerusalem, I learned about the evil, because that was evil, that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me. I bet it was. Huh. I love that understatement, don't you? I, I love this. And it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Now, that's a leader. Here's a leader that doesn't work by committee. Because, see, when, when something is wrong, you don't take a vote. When, you got all these, we're coming up on the summer. And all these denominations get together, and they have their national meetings, you know, wherever they're going to meet. So you got the Baptists get together, and you got the Methodists, and you got the Presbyterians. And, um, you know, the Baptists had their wars, but, but the guys who believed in the Scriptures won, and we thank God for that. But, but you've still got this thing going on with the Presbyterians. Because they get together in the summer, and they have all these different deals, and they talk about, well, you, you know, whether or not homosexuals ought to be ordained to the ministry. What the heck are you talking about? I mean, what are you guys, the Democratic National Caucus here? Because you're sure as heck not the Church of the Living God. Hmm. Amazing, isn't it? Just amazing. The nonsense that goes on. And you think the Spirit of God is in a place like that? Gosh. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobias' household's good out of the room. You know what he did here? He cleansed the temple. A few centuries later, there was someone else who showed up at the temple and cleansed it. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Isn't that great? And he did it twice. You know? We see these pictures of Jesus. I've, t I've talked to you guys. We see these pictures of Jesus that have been painted over the years. You know, his soft hands, his flawless complexion, his, uh, his Breck hair. <laughs> you know, that, that wasn't Jesus. Jesus had four arms on him. Jesus had been a carpenter. He had calluses on his hands. Because he, he worked his own lumber, cut his own trees, he planed his own wood. You know, he, he and Joseph didn't drive a forklift around the, the shop. He was in shape. His, his complexion wasn't flawless. He wasn't effeminate. And when he walked into the temple, he was angry. Because the holiness of his God was being mocked and ridiculed. And he took off that, he took out that whip and he started kicking butt in the name of Jesus, which was his name. And you know, he didn't do it once, he did it, he did it twice because it needed to be done twice. That's something. I'll give you a principle that comes out of Nehemiah's experience. And the principle is this, um, leaders cannot consistently lead from a distance. 
wherever God, whatever responsibility God has given you, whatever your leadership responsibility is, you need to be there and you need to be on site. You can't lead from a distance. You can't manage from a distance. I, I, I don't know if I've shared this with you guys or not, but uh, it used to be that I, I loved to bowl. And I would, I would bowl you know, once or twice a week. It was just, it was what I did to relieve stress. There was just nothing like throwing that ball and, you know, seeing those pins just scatter. You know, it just kind of gets all the stuff out. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I did all right. I, in fact, I was more than all right. I was just darn good. I carried an average of about 260. And uh, I worked hard at it, but it was a lot of fun for me. Now, I need to tell you this, though. Whenever I'd go bowling, I made one adjustment. To the game. Uh, I would bowl from 15 feet away. Uh, because I found if I would bowl from 15 feet away, my enjoyment level went up dramatically. <laughs> so I worked it out with them, they'd give me a lane, and I just, I'd, you know, forget that regular line, that's 60 feet away. I'd walk down 45 feet, and I would just bowl. And you know what? It was great, because usually when I threw a ball, I got a strike. And and if by chance, you know, I left a pin or two, I'd usually spare out. That's my average of 260. Now, when I would move back to the line, the regulation line, my average would drop to 12. <laughs> now, why is that? Well, there's a principle there, and the principle is this. Error increases with distance. That's not only true in bowling, it's true in um, golf. <laughs> Thank you, Annika. We appreciate that. It's true in golf. You know what else it's true in? It's true in fathering. So you got little kids at home, and you got a job, and they say, hey, you know what? Things have changed, and we've cut a lot of guys go, and we're going to need you to travel five days out of seven. You leave Monday morning, maybe Sunday night. You pull in Friday night, 10, 11, midnight. You're going to have to think about that because God has given you children to raise. That's a responsibility that he has given to you. And you are going to have to really consider heavily that new responsibility that's being offered in your career as to how that's going to apply to your primary responsibility. You say, well, Steve, I've got to provide. Yes, you do. You have to provide financially, but you're also to provide spiritually. And you're to provide emotionally. And you're to provide discipline for your children. And if you're gone... Five days out of seven, see, you can't lead from a distance, not consistently. Error increases with distance. It's true of anything. <sighs> Nehemiah is ticked off. And there are a few more things that tick him off because he had to be gone for a while. Whenever you're gone for a while, it's like when you go on vacation. It's almost not worth it, is it? You come back, and when you come back, it's just unbelievable everything that happened when you were gone. That's just how it works. That's life. But see, that's, that is life, and that's leadership. Uh, if your expectations are that things are going to just go smoothly and things are going to go great, uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed in life. Uh, life is difficult. The second law of thermodynamics <laughs> is not that things get better and better. The second law of thermodynamics is that things are breaking down and getting worse and worse. <laughs> Uh, that, that's true in life. That's true with families. 
That's true in any kind of relationship situation. So he comes back and things are broken down. So now he's got to uh, fix it. The first thing he does, he cleanses the temple. He takes that sucker and he throws him out. That's what he does. Now there's a second thing he does. Uh, he confronts their violation of the covenant. Before he left, they had all gotten together. Uh, they'd done a stadium thing, sort of like a promise keepers thing. They all got hyped up. They played the shofars. Uh, you know, they all came in on buses from out of town. They had this big get-together, and everybody's hyped, and everybody's pumped, and they'll say, we'll obey the Lord. We signed the covenant. Remember that we talked about last week? They signed off on the covenant. He takes off, comes back, and they're violating the covenant. So he confronts. First thing he does, he cleanses. Now he's going to confront. He's going to confront them about three things. Number one, uh, he confronted them for their lack of giving. Uh, note verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. These people were supposed to support the Levites. They promised that they would. We saw that again last week. But they reneged on their promise. So these Levite guys couldn't do the work of the temple. They had to go back onto the land and start working to support their families. That's why worship wasn't taking place in the temple. That's why they cleared it out and moved, well, what's his name in there? You see? That was a tremendous breach of the covenant. They had agreed to pay this temple tax. Uh, notice he also confronted their breaking of the Sabbath. Look at verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Now, one of the things they had agreed to, one of the things they'd signed off on, is that they would not work on the Sabbath. They were Jews. Uh, you look at Exodus 31. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant is, is the Sabbath. They were to keep the Sabbath. It was part of the Old Testament law. They said they'd do it. They didn't do it. So what does he do? He confronts them. He admonishes them. If you're normal, you don't like conflict. I mean, who needs conflict? My gosh. Life's difficult just as it is. And you know what tends to happen, guys, is that we get tired and we kind of get worn out. And um, under your leadership watch, something will come up. And you know it's wrong, and you know it's not pleasing to God that's happening in your area of responsibility. The tendency is to let it slide. The tendency is not to broach the subject. The tendency is not to deal with it. Because that takes time and it takes emotional energy. Now let's say this. You've got to pick your battles. Because some battles are more significant than others. Some are not, um, you need discernment. You need wisdom. But this was a big one. And at times, there will be big ones that come up. And what your job is before the Lord is to deal with the situation. No one likes to do that because that's tough. And you know it's going to take a lot of emotional energy. And you, and, you, and you know that it's going to be a cost. But you know what? 
If that's your leadership area of responsibility, you got to do it. Uh, I, I was doing a radio interview this week with uh, there's a guy named Janet Parshall, and she's got a program, a calling program, uh, nationally. And I was doing it on on this new book. And this guy called up, and he said, "I've got a huge problem because my wife, uh, my wife has just changed. She's gotten." You know, we've been married X amount of years, and she's been a great wife and a good mother, but she's got absolutely obsessed with her career. And we live in Kansas, and she has an opportunity uh, to move to Texas. And, um, but we're really settled here. And all she can see is the money, because it would be a huge increase. Uh, and our kids are being neglected. And she doesn't mean to do this, but she's gotten obsessed with this. And, 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 and she runs 24-7, and... And he said, what, what, what do you do? And I said, well, do you really want to know what you ought to do? Because it might be uncomfortable. He said, yeah. I said, in Ephesians 5, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus told the church. He told the truth to the church. Uh, I would say to you that the one who God would call to help your wife is you. It's your job to lead her. It's your job to love her. And what you're telling me is she's a gal that has been a great wife, but, but, but something's happened in her heart. And see, the easy thing, obviously, the easy thing would be to just let this go, which is what you've done. I mean, quite frankly, this should have been dealt with probably several months ago, maybe a year ago. But it's gotten to this place where your family is in crisis. You need to love her enough to sit down with her and say, sweetheart, I love you. I'm for you. I'm on your team. But I need to say something to you. And I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear my heart, that this has gotten out of control. And I love you too much to let this happen. I love you too much to let this career run our family. Who makes the decision whether or not you move to Texas? Ultimately. Well, hopefully you'd make it together. But what if, what if one is, is not teachable to the Word of God? Ultimately, it goes down to the, it goes to the husband to make that decision. Now, those are rare instances. But see, in a deal like that, that that's, that's got some potential for conflict, would you not say? <laughs> so what's the easy thing to do in that situation? Well, just go down to the vet and get neutered. That's, uh, see, I say that so you'll remember it. Because that's what happens when there is conflict that needs to be addressed. Nobody wants to address it, but it has to be addressed in order for the family to function the way that God wants it to function. See? He confronts these guys on the Sabbath breaking because they're violating the covenant of Almighty God. There's a third thing. Uh, he confronts them for their wrong marriages. You guys still with me? Are you? See, oh, and something else. He got angry about this Sabbath thing. I mean, he got real angry. I, 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 can't, I can't forget this. Look at 17. He says, then I reprimanded. Uh, literally in Hebrew, it's I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you were doing by profaning the Sabbath day? I can imagine they said to him, well, you know what? This is so good for our economy. 
Because, you see, we're losing a whole day here. We're losing a whole day of income. And, you know, things haven't been all that great here. And we're trying to repopulate the city. And, when, and see, we, we need these funds. And, my gosh, you know, we're taking a day that we... Forget that. So he contended with them. It's like uh, Paul in Galatians, when Peter was getting uh, impacted by the Judaizer, and Paul said, I even had to confront Peter to his face. Because even Peter was swayed. See, Verse 18. Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us in his city all this trouble? Why are we rebuilding this place? Because we got disciplined and we were in exile for 70 years. And how did that happen? Because they did exactly what you're doing. Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Look at verse 23. Now he's going to confront them for the wrong marriages. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, now, they had agreed a few chapters before that they would not marry their daughters off to Gentiles because God did not want that to happen. Because whenever they would go outside of their community and they would marry these other people, these people would bring their wrong gods. That's what happened to Solomon, as we'll see in a minute. Um, uh, verse 24, that these kids, none of them were able to speak the language of Judah and the language of his own people. This guy wasn't into bilingual. This guy was into Hebrew. I mean, I, I'm being dead serious. He, there was a reason. This is a distinct, unique nation. May I be honest with you? This guy was not into multiculturalism. And let me say this to you. You ought to be real careful of multiculturalism. Now, now let's say this, and I want you to understand me. If I'm not talking about racial, because red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Where did red, yellow, black, and white come from? It came from Almighty God. So if that pleased God to do it, and you've got a problem with that, then you've got a problem. The problem with multiculturalism is not the color of people's skin, but the same issue of marrying foreign wives. Multicultures bring in different religions and different gods. And we have forgotten about that. So you go to Stanford, or you go to Yale, or you go to, or you go to UT, or wherever you go now, multiculturalism is a big thing. We're open to all these different gods. We're open to all these different beliefs. Recently, the House uh, representatives opened in prayer, and Iman laid them in, led them in prayer. Um, see, that's a multicultural thing. Well, you know what? That's the wrong God. He's praying to the wrong God. See, multiculturalism brings in Eastern religion. I mean, John, you know all about this, Hinduism. You think Hinduism is a good thing? You go to India, and you go look at the Ganges River, and you walk the streets of Calcutta, and you see those broken people. Isn't it true, John, that in Calcutta, garbage trucks drive through at night? and pick up the bodies and throw them in the back? Hinduism is a godless religion. But see, we're open. Jerry Garcia dies. Grateful dead. You know where they buried him? Not in Marin County. Not in Golden Gate Cemetery in San Francisco. They cremated his ashes and they scattered them over the Ganges River. You talk about spiritual darkness. He confronts the wrong marriages. 
I mean, this guy's passionate. Look at verse 25. So I contended with them. There he goes again. I contend. Why did he contend with them? Because he was angry. Why was he angry? They were violating the word of God. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them. This, this, guy, hey, this guy was not the hour of power with Robert Schuler. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> this, guy, this, this guy was serious about the word of God. This guy wasn't trying to win friends and influence people. This guy was standing for the holiness of God and for the purity of the nation. So I contended with them and cursed them and, and struck some of them. This is unbelievable. You know, and start slapping them around a little bit. And I pulled out their hair. I love that. <laughs> I did that once as a pastor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Sometimes you like to do it, but you don't do it. And I made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now catch this, see? Now he's going to teach them history. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. If Solomon could, could go down, the wisest man in all the world, then how can you do this? Do you see this guy's heart? Do you see his heart? See, a lot of people would look at Nehemiah and say, you know what? Nehemiah is not a real loving man. I would challenge you on that. I think Nehemiah was an extremely he loved people enough to try to save their lives. He loved people enough. Hey, if, 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 if uh, you, you hurt your leg, like this kid that was up, you're out there for several days, and they finally send a rescue team to get you, and you, get, you got gangrene coming up your arm, and you walk into the hospital, what's that doctor going to do? He's going to cut your arm off. That's a huge loss in your life. Now, why is he going to do that? He's going to hurt you. He's going to take something precious to you. He's going to confront you with the naked truth, I've got to take your arm. He's not going to make you feel good. He's going to rob you of a lot of your dreams and hopes and aspirations. But I would submit to you that that doctor loves you enough to do what he needs to do to save your life. That's Nehemiah. Last verse, he sums up his life. See, when I think of Nehemiah, what did Nehemiah do? What's the big thing he did? He built the wall. That's what he did. And he finished the task. Note three things that he says about himself. Verse 30, thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priest and the Levites. You guys that have kids at home, you know what your job is? It's to purify your children. That's, what, that's your job. You, pur you purify your kids by modeling the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what you do. You, you explain the word of God to them, and then you live the word of God before. And by doing that, you'll have a purifying effect on your children. I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged, or some translations say, and I established 
for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Um, remember me, O God, for my good. Huh. Um, see, why did he arrange for the supply of wood? Because for the supply of wood, because they had to make offerings to God. Because it's interesting to me that Nehemiah doesn't bring up at the conclusion the biggest task that he is known for. He brings up the small things. See, it's the small things. It's the things behind the scenes that we do that are the real test of leadership. Uh, sometimes confronting, sometimes purifying, sometimes standing on the word of God and having to say difficult things in order to save people's lives. This man's a great leader. He's a great role model. We need Nehemiahs today. So that's our job. That's our task. So, Father, we thank you for this man. We thank you for his life. Lord, we pray for ourselves. We get angry. Sometimes we get angry over the wrong things, and we get out of control. Lord, we, uh, we want to get a grip on that by your grace. We want to learn to get angry over the right things. Uh, we want your name not to be taken in vain in this culture. We, not, we want your word not to be ignored and trampled on. Uh, we, we want your kingdom to be done. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Lord, that has to begin in our homes. It has to begin in our marriages. It has to begin in our fathering and grandfathering. Lord, help us to learn from this man, his passion, his love for you. He had a zeal. Give us some of that zeal, Lord. Give us some of that juice that this guy had. He could not be ignored because of his love for you. We pray these things in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys. Thanks so much. They've got... Uh, uh, there's health food downstairs in the, uh, in the deal. So let's do it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Have a wonderful yeah. summer. I will. I'm planning on it. Thanks, man. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.